When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, I've been thinking about a lot of different things lately concerning how we do our aquariums, how we manage them, the types of practices that we engage in, and how the, the greater fish world perceives us. And I've been getting a lot of comments from people that are just, I don't know, people are kind of really bummed out about how they're being... Uh, perceived and some people even being beaten down by the the craziness on social media when they share their botanical method tanks in some corners. I'm really trying to break through to some of you who've been, you know, really beaten down by this. And today's going to be kind of a wide-ranging discussion, but I want to talk start off first talking about this. There's a bunch of you reached out to me lately and you're really concerned about the reception some of your work is getting from, you know, self-proclaimed experts out there. And I, I say enough is enough. Let's be honest, you're getting a lot of criticism from you people for your work, and it's amazing. And most of these so-called experts don't have enough experience with botanical method aquariums to levy any sort of criticism at all with any degree of credibility or meaning. Yet, they do know that these types of aquariums differ substantially from what they know to be the way to do stuff in the hobby. So it's really easy for them to criticize you. After all, what you're doing is not the same as everybody else, so therefore it must be wrong, right? What? Why do we as a hobby seem to find such comfort in doing what everybody else does? I don't understand. I have tried to find comfort in doing what I think is cool and what potentially is breakthrough work for my fishes. Why do we have to copy everyone else's tank in order to be considered serious? I noticed the that big aquascaping contest, which will go unnamed, had its uh, results published or, or, or at least... Uh, the display of the entries the, the other uh, the other week or whenever it was and i couldn't help but notice all the really incredible tanks that were just so different from the typical contest drivel and i'm sorry i used that term and i know it pisses a lot of people off but the tanks that were just bizarre um and somehow completely different just kind of placed in the middle of the pack and i just i don't know i mean i guess it's criteria and all but i i find that really astounding uh and and it just made me feel like again this thing i have about contests like who has the right to judge or make bold proclamations about your work anyways i mean who the hell said that what you're doing isn't good enough or somehow isn't cool or whatever i mean i don't know a a contest is a contest i guess but in the aquarium world we spend far far too much time working about being accepted for our work or hoping that it stands up to the scrutiny of others i'm not the first person to tell you this i know but you need to just forget about that bullshit right now and do what you do best. Execute the type of aquarium or aquascape or habitat that makes your heart sing, not the one that's going to garner the most likes on the gram or, you know, kick ass in the, the the international contest or whatever. And you hear stuff like, you know, that won't work. Your aquarium will be filled with decomposing leaves and detritus. And well, who the fuck cares? 
I mean, really, surely these self-proclaimed critics must have something better to do than just shit on your work, right? So really, you should pity them, not even stress about them or their comments. And this has gone back for years. I used to take this criticism, too, when I started really pushing the Botanical Method Aquarium more than a decade ago online. And one of the criticisms that our hobby specialty has received a lot over the years is that we appear, at least to the uninformed and the uninitiated, to be embracing neglect of, you know, basic husbandry in our tanks because we have decomposing leaves and biofilms and blah, blah, blah. And in its face, this is an absurdity, but it just shows you how incredibly superficial many people can be, failing to go beyond just looking at a pic of a tank filled with decomposing leaves and then reconciling it with what they've been indoctrinated in the hobby to believe is the proper or well-maintained type of aquarium. I've heard lots of criticisms over the years from hobbyists to assert that our tanks are filled with, you know, nuisance substances. I love that term. Or, or just nuisances in general, like biofilms, fungal growths, even algae and detritus. And our acceptance of them is based on laziness and a disregard for the rules of aquarium keeping, which is just so wrong on so many levels. First off, it kind of begs the question, what's a nuisance anyways? I mean, sure, a lot to a lot of hobbyists, algal growth or fungal growth is unsightly and it detracts from the desired aesthetics. I get that. However, in and of itself, none of these things are really harmful, Right. Now, sure, you can make the argument that, it, you know, algae can smother plants and biofilms and fungal growth can cover things and look nasty or whatever, which is, you know, the plant thing is most definitely problematic if you're trying to grow plants. However, when it grows over a substrate or undefended surfaces like the glass or the filter intakes or, you know, botanicals, is it a problem other than it's simply aesthetically incompatible with your vision of how you want your tank to look? I mean, algae, as we all know, is actually a valuable and integral part of the ecosystem, and it's essential for all aquatic life as we know it. In fact, I remember reading a lot of articles about marine aquariums from the 1970s. That was an interesting time in the early 80s, which actually celebrated the idea of what they would call luxurious growth of green algae over your dried coral skeletons or whatever, because it was seen as a key indicator that your aquarium was well-suited for higher life forms, you know, like fishes. <laughs> In addition to cycling your tank, you wanted to see the algae growth. Hobbyists literally added cultures of live marine algae to their tanks during the initial startup phase to seed them. My, how times have changed, right? Despite the indisputable scientific fact that algae is an essential component of the aquatic ecosystem and the hobby's semi-embrace of natural, hobbyists still freak the fuck out when algae shows up in their tanks. Show me a so-called nature aquarium where there's even a visible speck of the stuff. Hobbyists scrub and siphon and pick at every square centimeter of visible algae growth in these tanks and consider it a shameful thing to have any of it in their tanks. And in our world of function-forward, nature-embracing botanical method aquariums, we celebrate the appearance of stuff like biofilms, fungal growth, decomposing leaves, botanical detritus, and perhaps even algae, much the way the marine aquarists of the 1970s and early 80s celebrated that appearance of green algae in their tanks. These life forms are viewed as foundational components of the closed aquatic ecosystems which we are attempting to assemble in our tanks. We embrace them not as a submission to lax maintenance habits or blissful ignorance or whatever, but rather as an indication that life is functioning as it should be in our tanks. As a hobby, I think we unnecessarily make a lot of stuff into problems. When you think about it, 
many concepts in aquarium keeping started out as problems or were considered impossible until someone made them work. Now, sure, I get the fact that nature imposes rules on what we can do and what we can get away with. There are consequences, often dire, to trying to break or circumvent natural processes, as I've told you many times over the years here. For example, trying to avoid the nitrogen cycle or attempting to keep incompatible fishes together. Much of the stuff is common sense. However, it doesn't keep a lot of people from trying to, you know, beat the system. Now, look, I'm all for trying new ideas, pushing the limits of what's possible and questioning the status quo in the hobby. That's what it's all about here at Tenon. However, trying to game eons of natural processes in order to create some sort of hack doesn't not only doesn't only not work, it's actually stupid. That is a problem that we create. You can, however, push the limits and break new ground by working within the boundaries of natural processes. That's advancement. That's progress. That's innovation. Many of us are working every day to progress in the hobby. It took doing things that we hadn't previously done before, researching exactly what it was, what is required to make, you know, black water or whatever, and just doing some things that we were perceived by the majority of hobbyists as unconventional to get there. But we did. And now we approach keeping botanical method aquariums not as a problem to overcome, but as an approach which requires us to do specific things in order to be successful. And I think that's amazing. That's an amazing testament to where we are. Look, it wasn't like we were creating, you know, warp drive or nuclear fusion or whatever, but it's an example, one of many in our hobby, of an evolution which simply required us to look at what exactly we wanted to accomplish, understand what it was, and to develop ways to work within the requirements and parameters laid out by nature to do it in our tanks. It's still very much a work in progress, but we're well on the way to making botanical method aquariums far more common in the hobby, and I think we have already, and definitely not a problem as some people might perceive it. The funny thing is that in reality, it is sort of an evolution, isn't it? A little advancement from where we were in the hobby before. I mean, sure, on the surface, this doesn't seem like much. You know, toss, you know, leaves and botanical materials in aquariums, see what happens. It's not like no one ever did this before. And to make it seem any more complicated than it is to develop or quantify technique for it, which is a true act of human nature, I guess, is probably a bit humorous to people. Yeah, I guess I can see that. However, on the other hand, the idea behind this practice is not just to create a cool looking tank. And we do have some technique behind this stuff. It's not about making excuses for abandoning, you know, abandoning aquarium best practices as some justification for allowing our tanks to look the way they do. We don't embrace the aesthetic of dark water, a bottom covered in decomposing leaves and the appearance of biofilms and you know, sediment on driftwood because it allows us to be more relaxed in the care of our tanks or because we think that we're so much smarter than the underwater diorama-loving, hype-mongering contest aquascaping crowd. Well, maybe we are, but <laughs> I know I promise I'm going to keep dissing these people <laughs> until they put their skills to better use in the hobby. Sorry, lovers of these underwater beach scenes and hobbit forests. You can do better. Come over to our side. Anyway, I mean, we're doing stuff for a reason, to create more authentic-looking, natural-functioning aquatic displays for our fishes to understand and acknowledge that our fishes and their very existence is influenced by the habitats in which they've evolved. We put function first. The aesthetics happen to be a byproduct of what we do. We've mentioned ad nauseum here that wild aquatic habitats are influenced greatly 
by the surrounding geography and the flora of the region, which in turn have considerable influence on the population of fishes which inhabit them, as well as their life cycles. The simple fact of the matter is that when we add botanical materials to an aquarium and accept what occurs as a result, regardless of whether our intent is just to create a different aesthetic or perhaps something more, we are, to a very real extent, replicating the processes and influences that occur in wild aquatic habitats in nature. The presence of botanical materials such as leaves in these aquatic habitats is foundational to their existence, as it is in our aquariums. And the fact that they recruit biofilms and fungal growths and break down over time in our tanks is simply part of the natural process. We can consider this a problem which needs to be mitigated somehow, or we can make the effort to understand how these processes and occurrence can occurrences can benefit the little microcosms which we've created in our aquariums. Anyone who's kept tropical fishes for any appreciable length of time does stuff that, while maybe not intentional, doesn't exactly fit the commonly accepted best practices of aquarium keeping. Stuff that perhaps doesn't provide the, the fishes under your care with stable, comfortable environmental conditions. Maybe you, you slacked off on water exchanges for a protracted period of time. Perhaps you forgot to replace your filter media. Maybe you added a few too many fishes in that 20-gallon aquarium. Maybe, you know, what about the time you, you went on vacation and forgot to set up a means to feed your fishes while they were away for 10 days? Or the time the heater failed and the water temperature never got above, you know, 67 degrees or for like a week before you realized it? These lapses are not exactly something that you want to have happen, yet somehow the fishes survived, right? Yeah, they did. Why? Well, perhaps they're a little more adaptable than we give them credit for, right? Sure, fishes will likely always do best when provided with consistent, stable environmental conditions. Conditions consistent with the environmental parameters under which they've evolved for eons. And this little side tangent I'm going on is not an excuse for, we're letting our tanks have decomposing stuff in there because fishes can tolerate it. That's, that's not the point. We'll get to this in a bit. Um, here's an example, though. I, I just want to talk about adaptability of fishes because... You know, we're adapting them to sterile, clean aquariums when the reality is that that's not entirely what they're used to in nature. And here's a funny example. I was talking with a friend a few days back about how disruptive yet necessary these occasional deep cleanings that we give our tanks now and again are. I was arguing that in reality, like I do with so many things, they're not so disruptive and likely mimic things that happen in nature. That's like a common thing with me, right? My hypothesis was that these were sort of analogous to seasonal and or weather-related events, such as monsoonal rains, influxes of water into streams, etc., 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 and they're probably no more traumatic to, you know, they're probably more traumatic to us as aquarists than they are to the fishes, which have evolved to handle these things over the years. What sparked this was, I remember a little epiphany I had, this is quite a few years ago, caused by just such a disruptive event. I was looking at my office tank one day and as it was recovering, if you will, from a, a pretty thorough cleaning that I decided to do a few days before. And I sort of marveled at the progression of things that happened. I kind of think I was spot on in my thinking actually for a change. After the first 24 hours, I was a little down on myself because I stirred up a surprisingly large amount of detritus from the substrate, which started to settle on the wood, on the leaves, everywhere. The water was a bit turbid. The formerly crystal clear, sparkling clean, yet very brown water uh, had a bit of dirtiness to it. It wasn't a huge amount, mind you, but sufficient to me, for, for me to notice and think to myself, damn, that looks kind of, well, different. And to a lot of aquarists, different equals shitty, right? Notice I didn't freak out and think, oh my God, this tank's a mess. I need to do another massive water change. Need to, yeah, I stayed calm. I sort of believed in the 
theory that I just mentioned. The theory that in most cases, a healthy closed ecosystem like an aquarium will rebound from a seemingly significantly disruptive event like the the great detritus storm of 2016 and return to its glory really quickly with a minimal intervention on the part of the chorus. The theory that in nature, disruptive events like storms and rains typically have more value than problems associated with them for the fishes, at least not in the long term. Well, fast forward another couple of days and I remember I thought that my time-honored hypotheses was, <laughs> hypotheses, I'm really, really uh, jumbling words today. My hypothesis was proven right. All that detritus more or less cleared up or settled on leaves and stuff like that. Some was maybe captured by the filter, perhaps to some extent. But the most remarkable cleansing of the detritus influx was conducted by the fishes themselves. I mean, especially my kerosens, who really went to town on this stuff, pretty much spending all day pecking at the wood, the leaves, the substrate. And I was wondering to myself, were they consuming the detritus itself? Well, probably not as much as I'd like to think. However, some of the materials bound up in the detritus were probably quite good to them. And this is borne out by my research into the natural stomach contents of many species of fishes. Detritus, organic materials, and insects, fungal growths, and other materials bound up in that little matrix of this stuff are a huge component of the diet of many fishes in nature. And of course, in some instances, the botanical materials themselves are feed as are the biofilms, the fungi, the sugars, and the matrix of materials bound up in the detritus and small particles of stuff in our leaf litter and things like that. I remember marveling at how the fishes were so busy at this foraging on the newly uncovered, you know, bounty that I I was so impressed by that I decided not to feed for the next several days. And the fishes were thicker and fatter than they were even before this so-called disruptive event. And the tank, it became sparkling, crystal clear with a beautiful brown tint, you know, in full glory. In retrospect, I'm thrilled that I held off from the primal aquarist urge to panic, reach for that siphon and do another disruptive maintenance. This was a mindset shaping event for me. I would have completely missed the interesting behavior of my fishes and the gorgeous rebound of the aquarium. And I say rebound in air quotes because it really wasn't that bad during what would have been my frantic intervention. Rather, I made a rather mature decision just to pick up where I left off and conduct my regular water exchange later that week. So the simple simple takeaway from that little epiphany was not everything that seems like a problem is indeed a problem. Not everything requires a rapid intervention or any intervention for that matter. That's kind of why I have a very lax mindset about detritus and you know biofilms and curing wood in situ and all that kind of stuff. Nature's got this act honed to a fine sheen. We can coax it along or even jump right in the mix. However, the reality is that these processes are certainties if left to themselves. There are reasons why stuff like this happens in nature and reasons why our animals have adaptive mechanisms to deal with them. We just have to be patient, observant, and engaged. Shit settles out. These are all qualities that every aquarist has, right? Patience and all that stuff. Yeah, okay, right. But look, I'm obsessed with this, as are many of you. And it's part of what interested me in the idea of using botanicals and the materials, botanical materials in the aquariums in the first place, an attempt to replicate some of the physical, environmental, and ecological characteristics of the environments from which fishes come from in the wild. However, it's no secret that fishes will adapt to more easily provided captive conditions, even reproducing under them. You know, this discus are bred in hard alkaline water, or whatever, tetras that are you know, despite having evolved for eons in soft acidic conditions, often thrive and breed in that hard alkaline water. 
there's not really a mysterious reason why this is. The reality is that most fishes can adjust and adapt to changing or challenging conditions if you give them a little help. The help is providing aquarium conditions which are chemically stable. And in the case of those measures which reflect the levels of metabolic waste in the water, low and stable. Keep them well-fed and stable. It really boils down to common sense husbandry, which we've been practicing in the aquarium hobby for 100 years. Stability, or more specifically, stability within a given range of measure, is what always seems to keep fishes and corals alive and thriving. Continuously, quickly changing, and wildly varying environmental parameters are simply stressful for fishes, and while often not killing them quickly outright, will result in continuous stress, which can lead them to be susceptible to disease and other medical problems over time. That being said, it's not imperative that every single parameter in your aquarium needs to be perfectly stable and spot on and according to our hobby grade standards and you know you know our concern i think over any variation from perfection is really unfounded in my opinion we get too stressed out over minutia in my opinion to get perspective just have a chat with some non-fish keeping acquaintances about stuff that happens in your aquariums don't you think that sometimes as hobbyists we tend to get a bit, well, overly concerned about stuff that non-hobbyists just don't understand, or perhaps they do more than we can even comprehend, and will occasionally come up with some pearls of wisdom about fish keeping that just blow us away. Another case in point, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. Not too many years ago, I recall walking into my office one early one morning, and I immediately was taken aback. Apparently, one of my the, the, the timer I, that was back in the days when I used timers as opposed to cloud-based uh, controls on my you know LED lights. One of the timers failed and one of my lights, one of my tank lights remained on all night. Well, no biggie, right? Except for the fact that it, this was my first South American Igarape inspired leaf litter tank. And I recently added some really cool wild kerosens to this tank and acclimated them and quarantined them. And then, you know, this had to happen. And well, you know where I'm going with this. This idea was going through my head. Oh my God, the fishes didn't get any dark period. They're going to be seriously stressed. They're going to get sick. Now, you'll say that this wouldn't bother, bother you, but you're totally lying. You're full of shit. It would bother the shit out of you. I know it would because you're a fish geek. It's part of what we do. But of course, I relayed this concern to my wife later in the day when we touched base and asked each other how our days were going. And my wife, not at all a fish geek, yet ever the pragmatist noted, you know, Scott, sometimes unexpected things happen in the Amazon. Whoa, she was onto something there. And it's not just little old me who freaks out about stuff like this. I know for a fact it's a fish geek thing, but I think that as hobbyists, we tend to get caught up in every little minute detail of the worlds we created for our fishes, so much so that we often forget the one underlying truth about them. They're living creatures which have evolved over eons to adapt and deal with changes in their environment, big and small, or even insignificant, like an excessive amount of light one evening. I mean, there must have been some natural precedent for this, right? Some atmospheric phenomenon or combination of phenomenon which rendered the night sky inordinately bright one evening at some point in the long history of the world, right? Yeah, exactly. So think about it for a second. I think that's this high level for cons of concern, this overkill, if you will, on the part of hobbyists is based on the fact that we've taken great pains to assure that we've created perfect little captive environments for our fishes. And we do everything that we can to keep them stable and consistent. And when something out of the ordinary happens, a pump fails, a heater sticks in the on position, we forget to feed, whatever, we tend to get a little bit, oh, I don't know, crazy. Look, I get it. When a critical piece of equipment fails, like a heater, especially during a cold spell or perhaps a heat wave, 
It could be life or death for your fishes. If you're about to spawn a particularly finicky fish or rare some fries, it could be a fry. It could be serious problems. You can't really downplay those concerns. However, some of the less dramatic, non-life-threatening issues like a light staying on or off for longer than usual one evening or a circulation pump stopping unexpectedly for a couple of hours or forgetting to change the carbon in a filter one week, they, they, these don't really create that much of a problem for your fishes when you really think about it objectively, do they? Nah, they don't. At some time during the existence of our fishes in the wild, there was a temporary blockage in the stream in which they resided, slowing down the normal flow. At some point, there might have been a once-in-a-century cold morning in the tropics, right? At some point, the swarms of Daphnia or Acatus fly larvae that were so abundant for months at a time just weren't. In most instances, the animals that we keep are not so delicate, and the closed environments that we provide are not running so close to the edge that we should panic when some random factor changes up things one day. And consider this, when we purchase our fishes, they're unceremoniously netted out of the tank or stream or lake or whatever, uh, that environment where they resided, placed in a plastic bag, transported for who knows how long, and possibly making a few stops along the way before ultimately landing in our aquarium. That's a lot of changes, a lot of stress to cope with. But guess what? Fishes manage to deal with it somehow. Sure, our first choice is to have rock-solid parameters and unwavering environmental conditions for our fishes 24-7, 365, but sometimes stuff happens that throws a proverbial wrench into our plans. We have to be adaptable, flexible, and understanding, just like our fishes apparently are. So next time your light doesn't come on or you forget to feed your fishes if you rush off to work one morning, don't stress out over it. They're going to be fine. Keep calm. Always keep your concern high, but don't let obsessing over little details of your fishes keep you from focusing on the more important things in life. Yeah, there's probably a few, right? And remember, sometimes unexpected things happen in nature. There's one fundamental truth, really. The aquarium hobby isn't difficult. However, it can be when we make it that way by imposing our own barriers and obstacles to success. And that includes stressing out over what in reality are really not devastating issues for our fishes. Of course, you have to realize that common sense is super important. One of the unusual inconsistencies I've noticed that is sometimes you see information about a specific fish on a website describing it in detail in its natural habitat. And many natural aquatic habitats are influenced by their terrestrial surroundings. There's all sorts of interesting influences on these natural habitats created by the surrounding terrestrial environment and the microbial associations which occur in the substrates, the leaves, the wood, and other materials which com you know, comprise them. That relationship between terrestrial and aquatic habitats is becoming increasingly apparent, particularly in areas in which black water is found. And the lack of you know, suspended sediments, which create a kind of a nutrient-poor condition in these habitats, doesn't do much to facilitate in situ production of aquatic food sources. Rather, it places the emphasis on external factors. Many black water systems are simply too poor in nutrients to offer alternative food sources to the fishes. The importance of the relationship between the fishes and their surrounding terrestrial habitat, you know, the forests and so forth that are inundated, is therefore obvious. This likely explains the significant amount of insects and other terrestrial food sources that ichthyologists find during gut content analysis of many fishes found in these habitats. And as we hinted on before, the availability of food at different times of the year in these waters uh, also contribute to that composition of the fish community which varies from season to season based on the relative abundance of these resources. Another example of these unique interdependencies between land and water are when trees fall. 
Um, it's not uncommon for a tree to fall in, in the forest with all that rain and saturated ground knocking over just about anything that's not firmly rooted. And when these trees fall over, they often fall into small streams or in the case of the Varsea or Agapo environments in the Amazon that I'm obsessed with, they fall and are submerged in the inundated forest floor when the waters return. And of course, they immediately impact their aquatic environment. We've talked about this many times. They fulfill several functions. They provide a physical barrier or separation of currents. They offer territory for fishes to spawn in. They provide a substrate for algae and biofilms to multiply on and provide places for fishes to forage among and hide in. An entire community of aquatic life forms uses a fallen tree for many purposes. And tree trunks and their parts are going to last for decades, fulfilling the important role in the aquatic ecosystems they now reside in every time the waters return. In nature, as we've discussed many times, these places where leaf litter accumulates are among the richest and most diverse biotopes in the tropical aquatic ecosystem. Yet until recently, they've seldom been replicated in the aquarium. And I think this has been due in large part to the lack of, I don't know, continuous availability of products, maybe whether you can all collect leaves, or really more so a lack of understanding about what this habitat's all about. Not to mention the understanding of the practicality of creating one in the aquarium. The long-held fears and concerns like overwhelming our systems with biological materials and let's, quite, let's put it uh, uh, you know, quite honestly, the overall look of decomposing leaves have probably held a lot of people back and relegated this to sideshow status for decades. It's only been very recently that we started looking at them more objectively as ecological niches worth replicating in our tanks. The aquarium world, well, it involves some compromises, doesn't it? It involves a tremendous number of concessions and decisions and and it requires us to be bold. And it often comes down to what we want as hobbyists versus what the animals under our care need, that kind of us versus them. Sometimes this can be challenging, putting us at odds with what we know and what we desire and what we like. Often the compromises we make involve doing things for the greater good, sacrificing our preferences for what's best for the life forms that we keep. And that's not a bad thing, is it? It's important to understand that we require compromise in order to progress in the hobby. It's also important that we understand what is normal for the types of aquariums that we're working with and why this is so. We're well on our way to changing the hobby in a very positive way. As a community, we're pushing forward in many new directions, challenging established ones and breaking new ground. And it all starts with those mental shifts. And it all starts with understanding that what we do is, well, pretty damn cool. In fact, it's cool enough. So next time someone criticizes you, remember, you got nature on your side. Stay bold, stay creative, stay objective, stay curious. Stay engaged and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for staying with me during this little rant. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.